right, good morning. I have such incredible good news to share with you today. I feel like I'm going to explode. In fact, isn't that what Dr. Jim said a preacher's supposed to do? Get up here and explode? Wasn't that him, right? I hope there's some towels around here because by the end of the session, it's going to be a bloody mess up here. And uh, actually, I wanted to, actually, I'm actually prepared for a bloody mess. Um, I wanted to share with you one of the, uh, one of the most incredible missionary, uh, pioneer missionary tools available today. Um, you know, whenever you go, um, uh, and uh, I was talking with uh, James Cotvis about Peru. He says, every Peruvian has something in their pocket. If you ask him, do you have this in your pocket, the whole uh, congregation would be, uh, would raise their hands. And this is something you do not want to leave home without, and it works so phenomenally well. Um, and uh, I'll just show you this here. Um, if you're out and uh, you've got to take care of business, this is the ultimate, the ultimate missionary tool. You do not want to leave home without it. My rule in travel is make sure I got one roll of toilet paper for every week I'm out there in the bush, all right? Of course, uh, you're using the bush, so there's leaves around and everything's going to be fine if you need it. But um, I'll just get you a little insight. This will just give you a little peace and comfort to make sure you're prepared. You don't want to lose your papers. Uh, Passports are optional. Toilet paper is not. So um, you'll be ready when you join me on our next trip and uh, discover what God is doing in our world uh, today. Well, um, we're talking about the Great Commission in our day, and do I ever have some good news? And I am thrilled to share it with something new. I'm going to tell you about the story of how Jesus is at work in our world and how we experienced him when we stepped out to obey him. In 2009, I went to Cameroon for a, um, for a netcaster seminar. Um, then in 2011, I returned and we did three netcaster seminars in three different locations. And on one day, my son, uh, Mark Jr., and Alex, right over here, and I and Pastor Felix, uh, we trekked to three or four villages. And the next day, I realized something. It was a pretty ordinary day, but the next day I realized something. Jesus enjoyed that day. In fact, he got to go places because I took him there. And I, I enjoyed the day, but I didn't enjoy it anywhere near how much Jesus enjoyed that day. It was extraordinary for him. In fact, folks, do you know the whole reason he came to live on earth in me is to go with places with me? In fact, Mark 138 says, Let us go unto the next towns that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. Do you know Jesus is always anticipating the next town, the next village. That's why he came. That's why he's in you. And if you really want to know Jesus, get to the next town. 
Listen, church, how long has Jesus been in your town? Have you taken him to the next one? How long has he been in your town? Have you taken him to the next one? You say, well, I'm, I'm waiting for revival. Then we'll reach all the towns in our area. Well, I want to get you a little, give, you, give you a little secret here. Do you know you can actually preempt revival? Um, preempt means appropriate in advance. And here's how. I'll give you a little formula. It's actually found in God's word. First of all, skip lunch. Skip lunch. Secondly, go find a woman seated at a well. Thirdly, talk to her about Jesus. Fourthly, tell her to go tell all her friends and then go back to work. And revival might just break out. That's what happened. Well, I'm not sure how much this past January I went to experience Jesus. Um, But I want to tell you, we did. We really experienced Jesus. I don't know what God wants to do in this conference, but I'm not even trying to think that what I experienced in January could happen in this conference. We walked with Jesus. He talked with us. We met with him. I do know one thing. We did go to obey Jesus. We did go to obey him. And we really experienced him. Look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power. We're on page uh, 119 there in your notes, and the scripture is in front of you on those pages as well. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Those verses are telling us, one, a victory has occurred in which the victor now stands in an unassailable position. He says, a command has been given to make disciples, how? By baptizing them immediately after they believe and then teaching them to obey how they see you obeying. And it tells you that there's an experience with Jesus himself that is promised to whomever obeys in this way. There's a lady who experienced Jesus this past weekend. I don't think she'd stand up here and talk, but her, her first name is Melissa. And on Sunday, her father got saved and her family has been obeying Jesus. And I want to tell you, there's no one more real to Melissa than Jesus. She, Mel, Jesus is so real, she could reach out and touch him. Look at Mark 16. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and they upbraided them with their and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So then, skipping down, after the Lord had spoken unto them. He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God and they went forth and preached 
everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. This passage tells us, first of all, Jesus is alive for real. That's what he's saying. As long as they were in disbelief or unbelief about it, they weren't going anywhere. And he says, you got to understand I'm alive. By the way, it's very interesting. As Jesus had ascended and was now alive, he never showed himself alive to unbelievers. He only showed himself alive to because how was it that the unbelievers were to know he was alive? Through the believers. He was changing channels. It wasn't that they didn't want the unbelievers to know he was alive. He, they were going to see him through someone else. That's the way it is in our world today. When we're convinced Jesus is alive, the world looks at us and is convinced he's alive too. And that was God's plan from the moment of his resurrection. Jesus is alive for real and he's as alive right now as he was the day he spoke that Mark 16. Jesus is to be proclaimed everywhere. Go talk about him to somebody. Talk about him like he's alive and he's real. Not like he's just a doctrine. Because he's not a doctrine, although there's truth about him. He's a person. Talk about him like he's a person. He's alive, and you know him. He speaks to you through his word. Jesus, who is working, and this passage, Jesus is working any way necessary alongside of his disciples who are going everywhere talking about him. So they go out, and you step out, and you talk for Jesus. And you need something to happen to confirm the word, to convince the lost. Leave that in Jesus' hands. He'll take care of it. That's what he said. You just step out there, start talking for me, and I'm going to come alongside and do some miracles. That's what he's doing in our world today. Leave the miracles to Jesus. You just go and start talking about him. That's what he said. Now, God laid on my heart as we took this trip in January, verse I want to just mention, Zechariah 4, 6, not by might or by power, but by my spirit. And I was in the plane, I was reading my Bible, and, and God just said that to me. And if you look at that passage, God's talking to Zerubbabel about how he's going to use him. I want you to understand about the passage. He was not, when he said not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, he was not presenting a condition for how he was going to, if Zerubbabel fulfilled it, he would use him. Because sometimes we preach it that way, right? Not by my by power, by my spirit. And if you're, and, and it's legitimate, if you're filled with the spirit, God will do some great things. But that's not what this passage is saying. What he's saying is Zerubbabel. God's not laying out a condition. He's making a prediction. He's saying, Zerubbabel, I just want you to know something. I've chosen you, and you're going to do something pretty remarkable. And it's going to happen. And you're going to, with your very own hands, accomplish this. And I just want you to know ahead of time, Zerubbabel, that as you watch it happening, I just want you to keep in mind, it's not by might or by power, but I'm doing it through you. There is no if in this statement. It's simply keeping Zerubbabel's mind focused on who's really doing it. And folks, that's the way it is with us. Not by might or by power, but by my spirit, and it's sure. Just keep in mind, it's God who's doing it. Now, let's talk about the Great Commission here. Why don't we just pray here, and then we'll talk about the Great Commission. Lord, we just are thrilled 
with good news that can transform the lives of all of us, young people, old people, pastors, laymen, Lord, uh, you're, you're, you're talking to all of us and we're just looking to you to do something by your spirit. Um, and let us join you in what you're doing on our world. Take away our downtrodden, downcast, unbelieving. Uh, at, Lord, get our eyes on the right thing now. And uh, Lord, lift us up to obey you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Great Commission declares the matchless glory of the gospel. If you want to find out just how good the gospel is, tell it to someone who's never heard it before. If you want to find out just how good the gospel is, tell it to someone who's never heard it before. And if you really want to get in on the glory of it, tell it to someone who would not have heard it if you hadn't brought it to them. If you really want to feel you're in tune with what God's doing in the world, go somewhere where the gospel hasn't gone yet and speak the gospel. And you'll feel in your soul, you know what? This Great Commission thing is real. And I'm tasting of it. And it's happening to me. And you've, it's happened to me on several occasions. You can ask the number here too. I'm obeying Jesus. This is the real thing. And I tell you what, you go out and you just start speaking the gospel like we did every day. Before long, the gospel just begins to glow again. You know, the gospel, what God was telling me recently is, the gospel is a story about me. That's what happened to me. You see, I was first, my life originally was, was part of, of the first man, Adam. And you know, Adam fell and he failed and he's a miserable wreck and everything of his failure lived in me. You know that I'm born an extension of the first Adam's life. All that he went through in his failure was just transmitted straight to me in the core of who I am and I am living out his life. Same life passed on generation to generation. And I'm just, that's the old man. But I'm so glad that a new man showed up on the scene one day. And a new man came down to this world and he became who I am and what I am in entirety and he joined me in the most humble place in a manger. He joined me in my humanity at the lowest possible point of humanity. There's no one here who can't be, you know, there's no one born lower than Jesus was born. He lived for 33 years on earth, a perfect life and fulfilled the condition of my own manhood. And then on the cross, on the cross, the, the manger's where he joined me. The cross is where I join him. And on the cross, he took me on himself. And it wasn't, it wasn't just Jesus dying on the cross. I was dying on the cross. He took me there. And when he went into the grave, he took me with him into the grave. It's my story. And friends, when he came back out of that grave, he took me with him. And I want you to know, there's one thing that didn't come out of that grave, and that's the old me. He took old man, first Adam Mark, and he put me in the grave. He sealed that part of the tomb, and when he came out, the new man came out. I have the flesh in me, but I don't have the old man in me. I am one with Christ. His life lives in me, and he resurrected for me. It's my story. And 40 days later, he took me somewhere else. 
And he went up to the cross. He went up to the throne room. And what's on my mind is I'm in Bombay, and I didn't put this on my mind. I didn't choose to. I'm not trying to think real hard. Okay, no. This is what God's Spirit is just saying to me, and over and over again, He's saying, "Mark, I'm on the throne for you." He's saying, "I'm seated on the throne, and I'm there for you." That's good news, folks. You you can't improve on that. Only thing it can better is when you tell somebody who's never heard it before. That's what improves on it. Um. So, folks. Okay, I come back and I hand out a track to a lady down in Chicago. I hand her the track. Okay, I hand her a track, and she takes it. She takes it and she she looks at it and she puts it down. She put it down like I had just given her something on fire or something that was unclean. She, I, I gave her track and she, she, oh, okay, you know, turned away from it as if it wasn't good news. As if it wasn't something that could change her life forever. And I thought, oh man, in Africa, I give that the person says, oh, I want a whole Bible. Do you know the people in Africa see what's good news easier than the people in Chicago? And if we're not careful, we'll get intimidated into thinking this isn't good news either. And that's the problem. I walked away from that lady and I said, oh, I said, God, that's good news. Don't let me start thinking of it like she's thinking of it. Don't let me become intimidated next time I witness by somehow thinking I'm giving out bad news. If somehow I'm assaulting a man who in their sinfulness hates what I'm giving them. The fact of the matter is I'm loving him. Like no one's ever loved him. And I'm sharing with him good news like it's never been, like, like nothing he's ever heard before. And we begin to think about the good news like the world around us thinking. And we got, our, we got deception at work. We're intimidated. It's good news. We should be releasing this all the time. We should just be talking about Jesus all the time. It's good news. Don't let the world tell you it's bad news. This is good stuff. The Great Commission declares the matchless glory of the gospel. Secondly, the Great Commission reaches the immense extent of the harvest. The Great Commission reaches the immense extent of the harvest. Okay, okay, I'm going to try to convince you that what I just said there was true. The Great Commission reaches the immense extent of the harvest. Because what is the extent of the harvest? Well, Mark 16 gives us our first blank there, to every person. That's That's the commission of Mark 16. Then Matthew 28 gives us the next blank, in every people. Then Acts 1 gives us the next blank in every location. And since God's not willing that any should perish and he's with us to the end of the age, the next blank is in every generation. So here's the extent of the Great Commission. Get the gospel to every person, in every people group, in every location, in every generation. Oh, how are we going to do that one? So what is, it, what is it going to take? And I think every one of us need to wrestle with this. 
what's it going to take to actually get that one done? That's the big question. What is it going to take? What is it going to take to reach places like Indonesia? Uh, the country that actually has the largest Muslim population in the world, if I'm not mistaken, although it, you are free to be a Christian in Indonesia according to the actual constitution of the country, but it's the largest Muslim population in the world, I believe. Uttar Pradesh. Uttar Pradesh has been called the greatest missions challenge in the world today with the greatest conglomeration of different peoples in one area with the greatest darkness, Hinduism. That's there. How about North Africa? When you think of North Africa, you think of Somalia, you think of um, Tunisia, Algeria, Egypt, uh, Morocco. How do you reach places like that? How about China? China, the communists, where if you're part of the party, you know, you have sworn to the fact that you're an atheist. China, how are you going to reach the Muslim world? What's it going to take to reach places like that? Well, let me tell you, those places are already being reached right now. In fact, I just Skyped with a Baptist church planner in Indonesia, just talked to them two weeks ago. In the last six years, this man has baptized in a, in a disciple-making movement over 10,000 Muslim background believers. They have started over 1,000 churches. In the last five to six years. How about Uttar Pradesh? Since 2001, over 40,000 villages have been evangelized. 160,000 homes have received a clear gospel presentation. 65,000 believers have been baptized. Over 12,000 churches have been planted. North Africa, where 200,000 mostly Muslim background believers have been baptized since 2007. China, where between the year 2000 and 2010, 1.6 million were baptized in one metropolitan megacity. The Muslim world where God is working. Elias was an East African missionary living in the crowded Somali refuge court of a large city in the Horn of Africa. As Elias prepared his dinner alone after a long day of ministering to refugees, he was startled at the knock at his door by a 65-year-old Somali sheikh named Abdul Ahad. The sheik had come from war-torn Mogadishu, Somalia. Elias was nervous, wondering if this might be the night that Al-Shabaab, the Somali militants, might choose to extract their revenge on yet another Christian himself. When Elias opened his door, the sheik abruptly demanded, yes or no, Jesus' blood paid for the sins of everyone in the world. Elias said, yes, the sheik responded adamantly, you're lying. Then he hesitated. The blood of Jesus cannot forgive my sins. Well, he told Elias of the violence that he'd committed in Mogadishu. The old sheik began to tremble and weak. He said, I need relief from that. Elias told him, if you and I agree tonight, then God will forgive you. The old sheik prayed with Elias and Abdul Ahad was saved that night. Before he left, Abdul Ahad turned to Elias. Abdul Ahad turned to Elias and grasped his arm and said, when you look at me on the street, you see my Muslim hat and my beard and you're afraid of me. To tell you the truth, that's why we dress this way, to make you afraid of us. But you need to know, you need to know that inside we are empty.
don't be afraid of us. We need the gospel. We live in fear because we're ignorant of what God's really doing in our world. And we don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to reach it. By the way, if you want to understand how to reach Muslims giving the gospel, there's a book back on the table called Any Three. It's written by the man I just said is one 10,000 Muslim background believers in Indonesia. You need that book. You need it. Oh, great, we only have three copies back there, so um, I'm sorry about that. Um, um, you can, you, honestly, folks, most Muslims are easier to talk to than most Americans. You want to have a spiritual conversation? Far easier with a Muslim than with a materialistic American. Um, in, in 12 men in Northern Africa were being interviewed. They, this was just a year ago, and these men were, were remarkably fearless when it came. They were, they're, they're believers, they're leaders. And the, the interviewer said, look, I'm gonna be very careful. I'm not gonna even publish your pictures. I'm gonna change your names. And they said, they laughed. They said, why not? We don't care if you tell everyone we're followers of Jesus. And the joy that came out of them and the freedom that came out of them was just remarkable. And this is their story. And I think it's Algeria, following the removal of the colonization, uh, colonization powers in European and the independence, mid-1900s, there was great the freedom to be Muslim. Well, it ended up having great civil war, Muslim on Muslim. Okay, civil war, Muslim on Muslim. And you know what's happening in that country? They're saying something's wrong with being Muslim. It's happening all over the world. Iran's another place. Something's wrong with being Muslim and they begin to, and, and, and the gospel begins to spread. Thousands of believers are, are, are made in this region. Um, and as the civil war is going on, these men, and they, many of them testified in all of the civil war, not a single Christian was ever killed. Supernatural protection and so forth. And these guys say, we're invincible. I don't care. Publish our names. Put our face up there. We know the living Christ. He protects us. We have nothing to worry about. You see, Jesus was real to them. He was working in their lives. And someone said, what's the main reason why Muslims are coming to the Lord? And they said, two main reasons. One, someone brings us a personal witness. Someone comes and talks about us, either a family member, a friend, or an intentional witness. And they says, number two, Jesus answers prayer. He's real. Folks, no other religion in the world has a real and living God. Do you know answered prayer convinces the lost that Jesus is real? And they talked about God's protection and healing and things like that, that they saw God do in direct answer to prayer. And they knew a real and living God. What is the key in every single one of these movements to Christ? Not one of these is, is depending on contemporary Christian music. Not one. 
Not one of these is depending on impressive megachurch stage productions. Not one. Not one of these is depending on marketed crusades with famous evangelists. Not one. Not one is depending on sensationalized signs and wonders. Although, acts like miracles are commonplace. What is the characteristic quality of these moves of God? Two things. Earnest, sacrificial prayer. Secondly, disciple-making and church-planting in the hands of native, ordinary, everyday believers. So what is it going to take to reach your region? What is it going to take to reach our world? Well, how about trying the method that Jesus, the method of Jesus that shaped leaders who went to the ends of the earth? He ordained, how many did he ordain? Twelve. Small group ministry. How about the method of Acts that exploded out of the believers touched by Pentecostal revival, where Pastor already read it, the churches were multiplied. Where did those churches come from? Where were the apostles at this time? Still in Jerusalem. So where did the church, where did these churches come from? the witness of everyday, ordinary believers. And they planted churches. Not professional church planters, not even a missionary. Oh, it's fine for a missionary to do it. That's what he's supposed to do. That's not where these churches came from. The method of Paul, who planted churches in short periods of time that filled entire regions with gospel truth, the Thessalonians, uh, for, from, uh, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia, came, but in every place. Who's spreading it? The believers. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all that which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Was that Paul traveling all through Asia? No. So the method that Paul employed, the method that Jesus, the method of Acts, the method that Jesus commanded for his followers to obey which we'll look at in a moment. The method of Baptists in America that produced what still remains is the Bible Belt. I think we're always comforted when we feel like, hey, you know what, I've been a part of this before. Do you know, folks, Baptists transformed America through church planning? In fact, let me just give you a little bit here that'll help. An historian in explaining, explaining the rapid growth of the pioneer Baptists and Methodists he said in both of these denominations, which were really the key ones, um, ministers primarily came from the ranks of the common folk and to a very important extent remained common folk. Unlike the congregational Presbyterian Episcopalian ministers who typically were of Gentile, genteel origin and were highly trained and well-educated, the Baptist and Methodist clergy were of the people. They often had little education, received little, if any, pay, spoke in the vernacular and preached from the heart. The local preacher for either of these upstart sects was a neighbor, friend, or relative of many of the people he served. Baptist church growth in the 1700s and 1800s was incredible. In 1740, the Baptists were 30, about 3,100 members with 60 churches. By 1790, 50 years later, they had grown to 67,000 members and almost 1,000 churches. So in 50 years, from 60, 1,000 churches, and if you figured out, the average size of the church was 68. Then by 1810, uh, here's 1810, okay, this is just 20 years later, it swells to 172,000 members. That's 2,500 churches. 
And that's what's happening among the Baptists. There were a number of different church planning methods. Um, one historian said in 1700, Baptists had only a few scattered churches in America. By 1800, they had become the largest denomination in the land. A number of different church planning, for instance, here's one, William Sojourner, he moved from Virginia with several others. He settled in the Kahuki Creek in Halifax where he planted a church and within 10 years, his congregation had mothered 16 others. The Severns Valley Church in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, begun in 1781, was involved in planting so many churches that the historian said, Old Severns Valley is the mother of a multitude. He couldn't even count them. Sandy Creek is, all, is one of them. I was, I was thinking on this and I thought, you know, how many of us have the concept, even maybe in the front banner of our church, come and grow with us? I think maybe we should change that around and say, go and spread from us. How about putting that in the front? Take down come and grow to go and spread. That's a big change in thinking if you take that in. And it might be our key. Many Baptists, many of them had not been theologically educated. It was not unheard of for a group of Baptists to begin gathering for study, encouragement, and worship without a designated elder or elders. It was common practice for a congregation to form and later call on one of its members to serve as the pastor. It was common for pastors of established, here's, here's, here's another one, listen. It was common for pastors of established churches on the frontier to be involved in church planning. One man, Pastor Hezekiah Smith, spent several weeks every year pioneering new areas. He would preach the gospel and plant churches. John Whitaker, the planter and first pastor of Bear Grass Church in Kentucky, assisted in constituting most of the early churches planted within 50 miles of Louisville. What can we learn? First, Baptists are people of the book. Secondly, Baptists live, work, play, and travel with people they serve. They have a one of heart and mind with their people. Um, Third, Baptists keep church and ministry simple compared to other denominations. And they did that at that time. The Baptists and Methodists were able to move quickly with the gospel plant churches because their ecclesiology did not require the complicated expectations of what constituted legitimate churches and ministers. They were noted as simple in their methods. Fourth, Baptists had an ecclesiology regarding the local church that saw the local church as autonomous. And under the direct leadership of the Holy Spirit, Baptists believe that the local church should be self-governing. So I just want to say, if anyone is involved in the Great Commission getting done, it ought to be Baptists. And I think it very well be could true, like James Beller says in his book, Baptists have got deceived and have left what a very thing it was that spread them abroad. And we have moved into a megachurch mentality rather than a disciple-making mentality. And folks, if we'll switch, if we'll switch our function, we'll switch our plan, we'll switch our model, we just might see revival break out. So the Great Commission reveals... Um, Look on page 121. The Great Commission reveals the divine genius of the master trainer. The divine genius of the master trainer. 
The Great Commission is more than an end goal. It is an everyday strategy placed in the hands of ordinary disciples that will multiply believers and churches anywhere in the world. I mean, we're talking about a strategy that can go underneath the strong culture, uh, strong opposition of a Muslim culture and can spread like wildfire. This strategy, straight from the lips of Jesus, can go anywhere. It's so simplifying and it so unleashes the mission's heart. I can go anywhere and I know what to do. What would I do if I got to wherever? It's right in front of us. What a perfect strategy. Go everywhere, Jesus said. So he meant for it to go anywhere and everywhere. Go everywhere and what's the strategy? Make disciples who obey. The gospel is first. Give the gospel first. That's the first step in becoming a disciple. Gospel first. Make disciples who obey. Secondly, baptize them immediately as the first step of obedience. By the way, well, I think we'll get to this. Um, um, baptize them immediately. And then thirdly, teach them to obey everything. But what should you teach them to obey first? The Great Commission. That's what they saw you doing, right? So if they learn and follow you, they're going to do what, what you just did first. They get that one. So give the gospel first. Baptize them as the first step of obedience. Make sure they're obeying the Great Commission first. Um, and so what is a church then? A church, I, I, I like to think of a church in this simple term. There's so much you could do. I mean, the church is so amazingly divine but here's here's a simple definition of church a church is this a group of people united in jesus to make disciples that's it a group of people church my assembly united in jesus he's ahead and why are we here to make disciples that's what a church is honestly that if that's all you're focused on you'd make it um a church is that um to make disciples. Think about this for a minute. A disciple who is not making disciples isn't a disciple. A disciple who isn't making disciples isn't a disciple. They might be a believer, but they're not a disciple. A church that isn't planting churches has lost the scope of what God wants to do through it. And it's also lost sight of the timeline. Well, if I get this church planted in 20 years, by that time we'll be ready, we'll start in a church. Wait, 20 years is a generation. You were supposed to complete the Great Commission in 20 years. That's true. The Great Commission must be completed every generation. So whatever you're trying to do has to encompass the scope of what it would mean to actually fulfill it in 20 years. Um, disciple making. Uh, here, 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 first blank is church, a group of people united in Jesus to make disciples. Disciple making is disciple making in the hands of new believers from day one. 
You write that down. Disciple-making in the hands of new believers from day one. You see, disciple-making is not an achievement after a convert reaches a certain level of knowledge. Disciple-making is the life of Christ in the believer from day one. And if you get a hold of this, there'll be breakthrough. It'll change everything. It's what Caleb did with Pong. A disciple, disciple-making is the life of Christ in the believer from day one, from our one. And that disciple goes and tells someone else what just happened to him. And by the way, Jesus actually made the first step real easy. Do you know how a brand new believer tells everyone else what just happened to him? Gets baptized. Do you realize that baptism is the immediate opportunity for a new believer to make a disciple? Just like that. That's God's plan. It's so important to God that a new believer becomes a disciple maker that he actually commanded the first public easy step, get baptized. And everyone will know what just happened to you and they, they just might follow. Um, and then church planting as a spontaneous result of disciple making. Church planting is not a church project. Church planting is church life. Church planting is not a church project. Church planting is church life. It's what happens wherever disciple makers go or live. Recently, we had a class in church planting here at BCM. We were talking through some of these things, and the guys walked away with this conviction. I don't care where I'm called. I don't care what gifting I have. I'm a part of church planting. They got it. Church planning is not a professional role of a few select people. Church planning is actually the work of every believer anywhere you go in the world. Oh, get a hold of that. It'll, it'll, it'll break some things apart, but it'll build some other things up. <laughs> so the conviction then in this regard, the conviction then is this, that deep conviction is this, the Great Commission can and must be completed in our region in the next 10 to 20 years. That's the conviction. Okay, so, Pastor Gilma, how did you get to this point? Well, I didn't just get to this point. There's others, and, and, and we're learning and so forth. But wherever I find people who are getting to this point, they're wrestling with this. I can't go on and not have the Great Commission fulfilled. They're wrestling with this. What is what is happening in my life and in my church fulfilling the Great Commission? And they're taking into their hearts and souls, like this man in China. Okay, he's called to China in this mega, you know, megaplex, this metropolitan area. 16 million people. He says, this man says, okay, I know I can plant a church every year of 40 to 50 people. And if I'm here for 20 years, how many churches will that be? 20 churches. Well, that's pretty phenomenal, right? I mean, I'd take that. But he says 20 churches and 16 million is not the Great Commission. Oh, that's great, but it's not the Great Commission. I have to have a plan that actually reaches 16 million. So God puts it on his heart. He says, I don't want you to even plant a church. You're, you're not going to even pastor a church. You're going to train people to plant churches. And then you're going to train them to plant churches. And what happened in those 10 years, this man never pastored one church. 
He trained ordinary people how to go tell their testimony, how to gather groups, believers. And by the way, this is China, so you're talking about small house churches. They're not building buildings. Um, they don't have big budgets. They are just multiplying. That sounds good. And he wrestled with this. This great commission has to be completed in the next 10 to 20 years. And God led him to this. So church, you've got 20 years. And I believe you can do it. I believe you can do it. So we come to this story of my first love, Bombay. And um, we come to the Great Commission brought the presence of Jesus to a village called Bombay here on page 121. Our goal, okay, here's our goal as we go in. With these things going through our minds, we've really never done this before. We're not veterans, we're just learners, just like you all. But God's given us a vision, and here's our goal. A disciple-making movement is the word. Led by national believers that will reach all of the choir region in the next five to ten years. Okay, so that's our goal. A disciple-making movement led by national believers that will reach all of the choir region in the next five to ten years. I'd like to scribble out five to ten and write in three to five because I think that's where God is working. So the operating principles then of our, uh, these are the operating principles. I want you to give them to, number one, bold evangelism. By bold, I'm not talking about wildly confrontive. I'm talking about free, liberated Speaking about Jesus. And I'll show you that in just a moment. Bold evangelism. Secondly, spirit-led prayer. Spirit-led prayer. Thirdly, reproducible gospel presentation. We mentioned the exchange. Reproducible means it's a presentation of the gospel that I can give immediately to the one I just gave the gospel to and tell him to give it to the next person. That's the vision. It's immediately reproducible so that he can go and do that. Second, fourthly, immediate baptism of new believers. Immediate baptism as a key step of obedience in the Great Commission, it's essential. Five, small group discovery Bible study that emphasizes obey and share. Discovery Bible study that emphasizes obey and share. And I Hope to show you that here in a couple minutes. Sixthly, training. Training new believers in a reproducible pathway of simple discipleship lessons. Reproducible pathway of simple discipleship lessons, training new believers. And seven, dependence on the living ministry of the Holy Spirit, especially inside new believers. Without the Holy Spirit, there is nothing. So as we came to Bombay, um, our goals were these, more souls saved. And I'll show you, mention that in just a moment. Our goal was the chief develop a spiritual burden for his soul and his people. So we burdened for the chief. We wanted to see him spiritually minded, not just temporally, you know, help my people get something out of these white people coming. Um, thirdly, we wanted to see Bombay believers witnessing to others. Um, fourthly, so we're taking a trip. I should mention this. We're going to be in Bombay for 12 days. These are our goals for 12 days. 
Um, fourthly, Bombay believers declaring they're turning to Christ in public baptism. Fifthly, Bombay believers leading their own church gatherings. Sixthly, Bombay believers identifying land and plan for a church building. Now, I think church building is actually optional, and, uh, and it really is, but um, we felt as I was working with the believers there, uh, the other leaders, that a church building would actually be a good thing. So those were our goals. Um, so we arrive, and now let me see if I can get um, this up here. All right, let's see here if we get this. Okay, all right. I want to sell my new book, by the way. You can get it out in the back. So. No, just kidding. Okay, um, Jesus in Bombay is our story. And so this began, and in fact, we're going to just take a little trip to Bombay here. I want you to see the beauty of it. Awesome. You want to go live there? It's a lot warmer. So come with my wife and I. We trekked into Bombay. Um, here's where we stayed. Um, this is right outside the chief's palace, and this was our home, my wife and I. Um, I that's, that's honeymoon territory right there. I mean, <laughs> best, uh, best 12 days of my life with my wife ever. Not hard to figure that one out. Here's our water source, clear spring there. And then there's our shower, only for use at nighttime. <laughs> and there is our African toilet. I built it myself. Built it myself. Went out in the woods, found this gully. It was already hand, you know, it was already pre-made for me. Just put a few boards across it and works great. And, and, and you need this, so take that, take that with you. You'll do fine. If you got this and that, that's luxury, man. You are good to go. Good to go. Uh. All right. So here's what happened. Um, back in June of this past summer, a group of, here's the Americans that went, and we had 18 of us or 17, 18 of us. We paired up with about 28 Africans, and we spread throughout this whole region of Aquia. And... Um, we had five teams. Each of us went to about seven or eight different villages. And wherever we went, and we had a time. I love this picture because it looks like I'm having the time of my life, and I am. And uh, if you talk to anyone else on this, trip, on this trip, they're around here, and they'll never be the same. So we go on this trip, um, and we, uh, we carry boxes of Bibles. I don't know that the Americans do, the Africans do. <laughs> Americans aren't so good at boxes on the head. Um, but... Um, Africans were amazing, and a few of those Needham missionary girls were as well. And wherever we walked in to a village, we had, you can see the gospel banner, we preached the gospel and gave out Bibles. And folks, on that trip, we saw 1,100 people saved. 1,100 people saved. We saw two men called to Cameroon as missionaries. We saw one teenage life rescued. And, one, and the prayers of one desperate mother answered. It was a powerful time. So we come to the village of Bombay. When we come to the village of Bombay, here's our chief. He welcomed us. He didn't know we were coming that day, but this is him on that very day. And he welcomed us. And, um, um, and, we, um, and we came into the village and we preached the gospel. Okay, so we preached the gospel. Um, we'll see if we can get to that. And this was our team. 
And on the morning, the next morning, we were there for less than 12 hours, uh, less than 24 hours. On that morning, I sit down with the chief here, and with God Love Helping, who's our African par uh, partner, he's pastor, and we, we give the gospel uh, to the chief. We don't really know what happens other than that he, he agrees with what we're saying, but that's about as far as, as we know. So, so, and then, of course, our trip in June is over, and, um, and I'm just thinking, if what we just gave to these villages, if what we did, in fact, one guy shakes my hand, he says, look, you just brought us the Bible, you just brought us the gospel. He says, you can't leave us, you have to come back. And with full sincerity, he's saying, you, he's almost accusing us of spiritual malpractice. <laughs> you can't come here and do this and preach this to us and give us the Bibles and then walk away. So we're thinking about these, and, and Bombay is on my mind. I think Bombay is on my mind because I think it's the smallest of everything. It was the least known. It was the dirtiest. It was the most undesirable place that we want to go back to. But hey, okay, let's go back to Bombay. We go to, um, so we're going to return. Okay, and we are, um, uh, we're going to go back. And so here we are. Uh, we're back now in January. This is actually January 1st, and we're driving down to Bombay. And here we are. Um, and this is our, this is our team, um, um, uh, several American missionaries, several national uh, folks, and then you can see the chief. And here we are, um, um, those two dear men, Pastor Felix and Pastor Godlove, uh, were great uh, partners. We would, every day, we took time for prayer, um, and our team would meet. We asked, Lord, lead us, um, and on that second night that we were there a group gathered together um, and um, we began to preach the gospel I'll get to that in a moment but I just want to tell you about the chief here here's our chief um, and the chief is a man we don't know we're, we're saying Lord what's what's going on here um, we, we're coming we don't know what the chief is he temporally minded is he spiritually minded and we uh, were there on the first Sunday we got there on a Wednesday on Sunday he interrupts the service and he begins to just give a testimony and so the um uh we meet uh we find out about the chief here and he's our person of peace let me let me move on while we're here i'll come back to that when we get there um so here's what happens on our first night okay our first night um we we begin to preach the gospel and we have you know, this is, this is the group that showed up, and that night we had about 20 adults saved, okay? 20 adults saved. We also had a separate children's meeting, um, and the children were taken off, and we had about 10 children saved. Now, all that is wonderful. In fact, here's the folks as they came forward, and we, when we, and we dealt with the ones who showed that they wanted to make that uh, decision. And that is all wonderful, but that's what we had experienced in June, right? And we weren't here to preach the gospel we were here to make disciples. Big difference. We were not here to preach the gospel. We knew that worked, and we were going to do that. We did it all the time. We preached the gospel all the time. And we were talking to people all the time. But we were making disciples. That's why we were there. And so when they return, that group that gets saved that first night, which was a Thursday night, when they come back on Friday night, on Friday night, we take those same folks and we divide them into small groups. And we have several men's groups that meet. Um, here's a couple of groups. Um, uh, Glenn Swanson, graduate of BCM, is there. Uh, Ty Tebow's in that group there. And right here is just a picture of the men. You see the chief, actually, um, uh, right back here in this group. 
and he's watching. And uh, so um, we divide into small groups. Um, here's another, um, another picture of these groups as they sometimes went uh, later in the darkness. And then we also have ladies' groups. My wife is with me. My wife was passionate about being able to communicate to these ladies, and God gave her just ladies who spoke English, and she is there. We have a couple ladies' groups, and these, these folks are into the Word of God. And in these groups, we begin to... Um, these, these folks, these ladies, here's a couple ladies, they just loved having their own Bible. They loved reading the Bible for themselves. Oh, they loved it when we took time to read the Bible um, together as a congregation. They just loved the Word of God. And these, these disciple-making relationships were happening, my wife. And, and here's what we did. The first night we met, okay, I want you to see this. The first night we gathered together here, um, and um, these folks just got saved the night before, and we placed in their hands this chart, a hand size of this chart, and this chart is a gospel presentation. And we say, okay, and we review the gospel with them, and then we place in their hands a, a form of this, this presentation and say, we want you to go and tell others. Second night, they're saved. And we give them an assignment. Now you go and you share this with someone else and bring them back. That's the, that's the first lesson on the obedience pathway, teaching them how to give the gospel. Secondly, the next lesson is how to tell your story. So the next night they come back and we teach them, okay, here's how life before Christ, you know, um, it's very much like exactly what you teach in netcasters. The only trouble is most of us think netcasters is about like six months into a believer's life. And we're teaching them how to share the testimony of the first day of their life. Um, And so that's what's happening. And within two or three days, we had people coming back who said they'd led people to the Lord. Um, And by the way, it's happening in the children as well. Um, here Elizabeth Needham's leading the children's meeting in fact look here one of the things we would do is we'd have them practice we'd take that chart and have them practice with the person next to them and here's a child practicing with other children on how to give the gospel Um, that's training that's disciple making Um, and so uh, this is going on and uh, my wife has this relationship especially with this lady Miriam right here the younger lady this is actually her mother Pamela and Miriam and Miriam she got saved on the first day that we gave the gospel. She began to be discipled two days later, and her testimony was clear. And we come to the first Sunday. I grew with my mother. Okay. My mother never knew Christ. She never taught me about Christ. She never taught me about God. So after some time, I grew up like that without discovering Christ. Mm-hmm. When I grew up, I went to Bamenda. And I got married without knowing Christ. As I was in Bamenda, one day I said I should visit my parents in Bombay village. When I visited my parents, Mommy, Joan, and Daddy Mark, they taught me. me about Christ. They taught me of trusting Christ and Christ alone without any other person. And on the 2nd of January 2014, I gave my life to Christ. I trusted Christ. <laughs> and with Christ, I have joy. I'm filled with joy. I thank God for giving me mommy, Joan, and daddy, Mac. They've taught me a lot. I've learned so much. Just in few days, I'm so excited. Before, I used to have a ang- spirit of anger in me. I could not listen to any person. 
I thought I had burden. I have so many things that could trouble me, but now I am so, so happy and there's much joy in my heart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I thank God mm -hmm. for giving me Mommy Joan and Daddy Mac. I've learned so much with them. Thank God for their lives. Yes. <laughs> you want to tell us just a little bit about the baptism, just real quickly? Okay. About the baptism, I got baptized in mm -hmm. a river. Before, I had baptism, but it was not in a river. It was water that they took and sprinkled on my head. Mm -hmm. But after when Mommy Juan taught me about baptism, that we must baptize showing a sign of the death of Christ and how Christ rose from death. So I was baptized in a river through immersion. I had immersion baptism. And with that, it is a sign to show that Jesus died for me and he rose again on the, he is on the throne. He has given me victory over everything. Mm -hmm. so, I'm so happy. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Wow. I don't know how she got it, but she got it. He's on the throne and has given me victory over everything. That's what we're trying to take in this week, right? She got it in three days. Um, we saw her a few days later because she actually had to leave town. And boy, she was glowing. And she was concerned for her husband. And she had the gospel clear. Um, and... Um, so she is there, and we feel, you know, we need to baptize. We need to baptize on Sunday, and uh, so we um, we actually that first Sunday we didn't we weren't planning on it. But I talked to Pastor Felix that very morning while the service is going on. and says, you know what, we need to baptize, and he says, yes, we do, and so we baptized her and her mother on that very first Sunday, and uh, that was that was very key to what God did. So here's a picture of us going out to the baptism, and here's a picture uh, of those ladies being baptized. Well, as you see here in your notes here, um, and I'll, we'll figure out what to do here on time here, but um, immediate baptism was a key. Um, and uh, the second Sunday, we also had a baptism uh, in which 27 people were baptized. And the second Sunday, here's the service. Literally, that service had over 100 people that came into the meeting that morning. And then we all went out um, for the baptism afterwards. What we have here, and I'll, 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 I'll talk with Pastor here about what to, um, to do in regards. Should I wrap it up here now? Okay. Yeah, right, we can finish the story here. I want to, I want to end here. Um, if you'll notice here on our page here, miracle number five, turning from alcohol, which is quite a neat um, uh, thing that we saw actually God do, sacrificial acts of love where we um, actually got involved in, in some health issues. We tried to help four people. We helped people come to find out four of the people we were trying to help had AIDS, actually. Um, and then leading their own church, which is something I really want to tell, but I'm going to skip that right for now. Um, and, I, and I want you to join me here. Um, look, 
If you see on page 126, 120, well, maybe we'll talk about that later. I want you to join me in Matthew 11. Join me in Matthew 11 as we finish. Look at Matthew 11. While you're turning there, um, and when you found Matthew 11, I just want you to look up here, and I just want to make a couple details, and then we'll conclude with the challenge. Um, back on the tables for your, uh, for your interest, and if you want to purchase, is the exchange, which is a four-lesson Bible study. There's a number of positive things about it. It's a bridge directly into the gospel based on what it is, the exchange. It is also a... Um, a clear presentation of the gospel. It is also a presentation of the gospel that actually builds disciple-making relationships because it forms relationships. And fourthly, it is a reproducible pathway of gospel presentation. Um, so you may want to look that over. Um, you, we do not sell that directly, although we, have, we do sell it here for you, but you won't be buying from us in the future because that is produced uh, elsewhere. Um, then um, the... Um, the obedience pathway is what Pastor was talking about. Um, this is that reproducible pathway. The very first lesson is telling your story. How to tell someone else, and then it challenges you to identify where the Spirit of God is leading you and who you should go talk to, and immediately disciples that new convert to get involved in their own harvest field. And the leader guide and the student guide, the second lesson is discovery Bible learning on, on the level. Now, here is also a series of Sunday school training lessons. This is what we've done with our church. We've taken the obedience pathway and taken segments of that and trained our church through the course of basically a 24 lessons, half-year lessons of, um, of, um, of discovery Bible studies based on the obedience pathway. And those are there at the back for you. Also, um, I don't know whether I'll get to the rest of my story or not, but it's all right here, all right? And this, this book is Jesus in Bombay. I didn't intend to write a book about it. I just wanted to journal it so I never forgot it myself. Then I thought, you know what? I'm writing this because I don't want my kids to forget. And then I realized, wait, maybe there's other people who want to know about it as well. And so um, the, the cost of this is a donation of $10. And all the money that comes in and sale is going to go straight back to the Bombay Church. They actually are going to try to help them get the tin for the roof. Uh, they're very, very poor. Um, and then towards other disciple-making efforts in the Aquai region. And so I'd love to sell out everything that I've got back there. I encourage you to pick that up. Now, now you're in Matthew 11, and we're finishing here. Matthew 11. And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he commanded them and sent them out. Look what he did. He departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. There's Jesus going to the next town. He sends his 12 out, and then he goes out and does it himself. You just can't constrain him. Um, and so John hears the prison, in prison the works of Christ, um, and he says, art thou, art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus said, go show John everything that's happening. Um, by the way, did John know who Jesus was? Oh, he totally knew who Jesus was. He just never expected to observe Jesus from behind a prison cell, did he? Um, and it shows you even the best of us go through times of doubt, don't we? And Jesus was good, and he ministers to John the Baptist. And then Jesus says this. Look down then at verse 9. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, more than a prophet. 
For this is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 12, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He's saying, okay, you think John is in a moment of weakness. He is, but I want you to tell you something. You got to know something about John. He says, there's, no, there's been no one ever like him in the past. When John the Baptist showed up, something changed. And this is what changed, folks. All the other law and all the other prophets said, Jesus is coming. And when John the Baptist showed up, he said, Jesus is here. He said, none of them has had a greater message than John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist is saying, open your eyes. He's about to walk around the corner. He is here. And he was. None of the other prophets had the, prof the privilege John the Baptist had. No other one said, he's here. Except you and I. We have the same privilege, even a greater one, to stand before whoever and say, Jesus is here. He showed up. Salvation is not just coming. It has come. It not just will be done. It is done. It is finished. What a, what a message. Everything has changed, folks. Everything has changed. We live in a world of harvest. And we have a message to proclaim. Jesus has shown up on the scenes of history. He is here. And folks, we look at all the darkness. We look at the compromise. And folks, it absorbs our attention. And we forget the biggest factor. Jesus is here. Jesus is alive. And I, my heart is breaking for fundamental brethren who talk more about the compromise of their day than the opportunity of our day. Because I think that, that's what God sees. We spend more time in misery over the state of our church than going out to and encounter and deal with the state of our world. And we have the privilege to announce Jesus is here. And then look at that verse. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Those words are a little confusing because... 
we look at violence and we say God hates violence. <laughs> it's not talking about that. Violence is this. It is to urge, to constrain, to overpower by force an object of a forceful movement. The violent is someone who uses force in an eager pursuit. He says they take it by force. Force is to seize, like a wild beast, to take, to snatch, to seize eagerly, to appropriate, to convey away suddenly. And what, 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 what Jesus is saying, look, it's not time to sit around and hope the kingdom of heaven shows up. It's here. And he says it's time that someone goes out and takes it. And he says, John the Baptist is my prophet, and he's taking it. He's announcing it. He's declaring it. And folks, it is time that fundamental Baptists start taking something. We need to pray. But the Great Commission says go. And the two work hand in hand. And if you pray only and will not go, you will not experience Jesus. Because Jesus is all about going. I leave you with this challenge, church and churches. I believe every local church should take responsibility for the fulfillment of the Great Commission in two localities. I believe every local church should say, God, what, what extent do you want the Great Commission fulfilled in our local region? And we're not going to talk about church anymore. We're going to talk about churches. And show us how many churches will take to reach our region. And that's our mission. That's the first. The second is this, that every local church will connect to somewhere where the gospel has not yet gone. I was talking to Brother Prettyman about his church in Idaho. And his church in Idaho, they have said this. They have just realized that there's no ethereal group that's going to take responsibility to reach their towns with the gospel. And they've accepted the burden for the state of Idaho. There we go. Now, they don't know yet what they're going to do. But they're obeying. And I know Phil Prettyman is connected to some work in Uganda. And what if God takes his home church and says, we're taking Idaho and we're taking some region of Uganda? That's good. That's real good. What if Falls Baptist Church says, we're taking Milwaukee County and Waukesha County and Washington County and Racine County. I don't know what, God, I don't know what we're taking. And we're taking a quiet region of Cameroon. That's good. What are you going to take? What are you going to take? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you said it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And you announced that you're going to do something great. And you're going to do something great in these ministries and in these churches. And we don't know how it's all going to work out, but Lord, help us to obey you. And now, Lord, help us to take something. And Lord, uh, we, we praise you for the privilege to serve you in this day. Please open our eyes to what you're doing in our world and what you want to do through us into our world. 
And Lord, may disciples be made and may churches multiply and may Jesus be known and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.